This is an ABC podcast. Good for the morning, Malorele, and good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Aggie Dubol, your host here for a Thursday morning. Today on the show, Judgment Day for former Fijian Prime Minister Bainimarama is looming. Is his testimony enough to avoid jail time? Yes, we're going to take the stand and we're going to testify to fight for our case. They didn't bring any other witness to testify on behalf of them. Gentrification in Aotearoa caused a mass exodus of our Pacific families, but many decided to stay behind. Their stories are highlighted in the doco series Still Here. Families were really forward thinking in that they wanted to do what they could to create a foundation for future generations so that even if it wasn't in their lifetime, that their grandchildren or great-grandchildren could benefit from, I guess, the fruits of their labour and their hard work and their sacrifices. And a prophetess has landed in Fiji, causing controversy over her legitimacy. Is she there to serve or is this a scam? Stay tuned. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, to the Solomon Islands, where a lot of attention uh, is focused on the upcoming Pacific Games and the developments in Honiara to host the event. But out in Western Province, there's excitement around another major development. It's the imminent opening of the revamped Munda International Airport. It's got a new terminal and a longer runway to cater for more international flights. Local businesses are hoping it'll lead to more international visitors, but extra help is needed to meet the expected increase in demand. Liam Fox with this report. Anticipation is building in Munda, the biggest town on New Georgia Island in the western province of Solomon Islands. Very excited, you know, it's, it's kind of like history, you know, it's the first time here we um, got this kind of um, international airport and we're expecting something, you know, in the future, in the long term. Nathan Kerr is the operations manager at Agnes Gateway Hotel, which is walking distance from the newly refurbished Munda Airport. He's excited, but also a little concerned. Uh, one thing here is we need more accommodation, you know, uh, but just my opinion, you know, just my suggestion, how we're going to meet the demand. The demand he's talking about is expected to come from an increase in visitors when Munda resumes its place as Solomon Island's second international airport. The airstrip has been there since World War II and there have been international flights to Munda in the past. But in recent years, it's been the focus of a massive World Bank-funded, Solomon's government-managed and Chinese-built upgrade. It now has a runway 2,100 metres long, with 50 millimetres of asphalt laid on top to increase its durability. And travellers will arrive and depart in a shiny new terminal that can handle both international and domestic flights. Stephen Degua is the World Bank's country director for the Pacific Islands and he inspected the new facility firsthand last week. Personally and for the team, uh, this is a huge uh, point of pride. Uh, But even more important is just to see the Solomon Islanders on the ground um, as well as the government all very, very excited about this, uh, this completion and what it signifies for them in terms of showcasing the uh, greater opening up of Solomon Islands to, to business. He believes the new international airport will improve connectivity between Western Province and the rest of the country and the region. As we know, Solomon Islands uh, is a very dispersed uh, country in terms of the population centres and the islands themselves. So opening up um, um, and upgrading this 
airport provides a steady and strong connectivity to the rest of the country, uh, enables um, a better uh, commercial uh, interactions, um, and also opens up the area for tourism. Mr Ndegwa says it represents a big boost to the regional aviation industry too. Having Munder International Airport open also means that uh, planes going to Solomon Islands uh, need to carry less fuel because there's a nearby international uh, uh, standard airport where they can land in case of emergencies. Planes will have to carry less fuel, which also enables them to provide more space for cargo. The new Munda Airport is also a big deal for the national carrier, Solomon Airlines. Frank Wickham is the airline's chairman. This is a very important step for us and an exciting development. The opening of a second international gateway to Solomon Islands has been a long-held ambition for Solomon Airlines and for our government. Mr Wickham says Solomon Airlines has big hopes for Munda, starting with a weekly Brisbane Munda Honiara Nandi service that will begin at the end of the month. You know, now that we've, uh, we have a second Airbus in, in our fleet, uh, we are availing more flights, um, not only in the region, but to, you know, now to Munda. And uh, we hope to grow the numbers into Munda. And uh, we hope that the, the uh, hospitality industry, the dive industry will uh, benefit from this and, and grow their business as well. Dive tourism has the potential to be a huge money spinner for Munda and Western Province. Currently, the area receives a smattering of international visitors keen to scuba dive on the area's pristine reefs. At the Agnes Gateway Hotel, Nathan Kerrett says tourism and dive operators need help to prepare for more visitors, like business grants or low-interest loans, but that help is hard to find at the moment. We ask for, you know, assistance, but that's what the tourism Solomon here, they say, they cannot afford to help us at the moment because of this Pacific game. And they keep on telling us to, uh, come on, guys, you need to, you know, gear up and ready for this. But, yeah, it's good to say that. Frank Wickham agrees tourism operators need help to gear up for international flights. He hopes that once the Pacific Games is over, the government will be able to focus more on growing the country's tourism industry. Access to financial services for tourism projects is, is not easy from the financial institutions here. So uh, we have to be very creative. And I think the government has to play a strong role in, in uh, making resources available. The Munda Airport will be officially open during what's predicted to be a big celebration next Tuesday. It's Liam Fox reporting there. To Fiji now, where closing submissions have been presented in the trial against former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and suspended Commissioner of Police Sitiveni Kliho. Next Thursday will be Judgment Day for the two men facing allegations that they gave directives to halt an investigation involving the University of the South Pacific. With Bainimarama charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice and Kliho charged with abuse of office. Fiji Broadcasting Corporation was in court yesterday where a minute of silence was also observed for the death of Ratu David Tonganaivalu, the acting director of public prosecutions. This is FBC reporter Abinisa Wonga Wongaratovu spoke to ABC's Nick Fogarty about the day's proceedings. For the, the state council and also the defence councils had to uh, make written submissions by 2pm Friday 
knowing um, that there will be no oral submission because uh, all they will be doing now is written submission. And then uh, Magistrate uh, Sini Puma will then deliver the verdict or judgment in the case on uh, Thursday next week, that's at 3 p.m. Was that expected to um, to happen so quickly? Was was the ruling expected to be given um, so soon? You know, people did not really expect the case to you know to go ahead for her to make uh, uh, this decision. But then uh, she decided that uh, you know the late uh, DPP's um, how can I say this um, Minisha Shankar, his uh, associate. Uh, he's now taking over the case from uh, Tom Nivalu following his uh, untimely passing on uh, Monday night. Uh, so Magistrate Pomao told Shankar that, uh, you know, she needs to do her best so that she can uh, be able to file and serve the state's submission by Friday. But then uh, uh, Shankar uh, came back and said that, you know, if she could be given more time, uh, but uh, Magistrate Pomao told her, no, this is uh, her time to shine and uh, made sure that uh, she complied and be able to file and serve submissions by Friday. Is there much of a, a consensus on what the verdict is likely to be uh, from what you've seen and heard of uh, the hearing? I could say that, you know, um, what we've seen so far is that, you know, uh, we can cannot really tell what might transpired uh, during uh, the judgment next week, Thursday, because a lot of uh, things came to play following... Um, the testimony by the former prime minister and the suspended uh, commissioner of police last week when they uh, decided, yes, we're going to take the stand and we're going to testify to fight for our case. They didn't bring any other witness to testify on behalf of them, but them. So what happened last week is that a few things came into place that uh, one of them is the former prime minister saying that when he told the then um, uh, commissioner of police Gilio to stay away from the case, uh, he was referring to something else and not uh, the audit or the video report at USP. And the former Prime Minister Bainu Marama was obviously a towering and somewhat divisive figure when he was in power. Uh, what's been the reaction there in Fiji as this case has progressed? I think people are just, you know, waiting for the ruling, what would be the result. And uh, uh, what we've seen in the past few days, uh, at times, you know, there would be crowd, uh, a crowd outside the court when they appear. And then uh, at other times there wouldn't be... Uh, any crowd there, and, but the police presence are always there, you know, just just for security purposes. And that's Fiji Broadcasting Corporation reporter Abenisa Wangairatovu. Eight Pacific peoples, eight stories of a new exhibition in Sydney featuring stories and impressions of Pacific Islanders who came to Sydney in the 18th and 19th century to do business, shop or see what life was like. The exhibit called A Titlekin at the Child Chuck Wing Museum tells their stories through archival material, their descendants and community. It shows some of the mutual and beneficial relationships between Pacific Islanders and Sydney siders pre the introduction of the white Australia policy of the 20th century. Depravka Volata with more. Soundscapes made up of spoken words tell the stories of eight Pacific Islanders who visited Sydney in colonial times. 
Along with these soundscapes, visitors can see old photographs of the voyagers where they exist and objects from the time, including tapa and spears. This particular soundscape tells the story of well-known Maori warrior chief Hongi Hika, who visited Sydney in 1814 for the first time. A relative of the late Hongi Hika, historian Brent Kerehona, helped with the exhibition. As a chief, he's got a number of responsibilities um, and one of them is to look at opportunities that his people can benefit from. And so while he was over here, he was looking at the legal system, he was looking at infrastructure, technology, agricultural practices. Mr Hika became a pivotal figure in New Zealand history, and Mr Kirehona says his stay influenced him on many levels. On his second visit, Mr Hika made a purchase that would change the course of New Zealand's history. It's probably widely known that he picked up a number of uh, firearms in Sydney that he would then take back to New Zealand and sort of the musket wars would then escalate from there. So, so him picking up those weapons in Sydney sort of changed the face of warfare in New Zealand forever. Mr Kerehona says the exhibition has deep meaning for him. It's really important that um, our histories are recorded and acknowledged as well. Each one of the eight stories is different. This soundscape speaks of Fijian chief Ratusero Epenisa Thakombao, who arrived in Sydney after a more than two-week-long sail. Talks about how he was greeted on his arrival and his visit to a paper mill, among other sites. Some soundscapes speak of intrigue, one of a dislike for corsets, Others had a fascination with Western objects or architecture, such as houses and machines. Curator Jude Philp says the exhibition seeks to portray the long-standing relationship between Australia and the Pacific region. I felt it was really important that we step up to show how long our relationships with Pacific peoples are, both in terms of migrants here to Sydney, but also in terms of people from the Pacific who came here to do all kinds of things and to engage with us in politics, in commerce, in belief systems, and from whom the city grew. The exhibit focuses on mainly positive journeys rather than on stories of hardship or trauma. We focused on people who did return home, in part because their stories are really strong stories of a mutual engagement, a mutual interest and usefulness. The museum got in touch with the voyagers' relatives or communities from Fiji, New Zealand, Samoa, New Caledonia, Papua New Guinea and Tonga, some whom now live in Australia and others across the region. They helped them reconstruct and tell the stories. For Burak's story, he's a, a leader from Yangen in New Caledonia. We needed to work with people in Yangen um, to be able to record their story in their language, which is only spoken by 800 or also many people. Other languages are spoken by many. This soundscape tells the story of Phoebe Parkinson from Samoa and PNG, who was married to an anthropologist. 
She holidayed in Sydney in 1882. Kululaine Fainu, who lives in PNG, is the great-great-granddaughter of Phoebe Parkinson. She recorded the soundscape. The excerpt that you, that you hear us talking about is, is Phoebe talking about when, as a young woman, being invited or, or going to Sydney and, and recalling a time when she was invited to go to a you know, a very, um, I guess, posh party because her sister was very wealthy. And, you know, Phoebe had spent all this time living in a very wild place of Papua New Guinea on plantations. And she didn't really have time for posh parties. And so it's it's just kind of a, she, she talks about how having to wear gloves and corsets and how everything was just really boring for her because, you know, those things didn't have any meaning for her and, and how she really wished to just go back home. Many of these stories are of community members who had the means and connections to travel overseas. Yet some of the travellers were less well-known people and one of those inspired a traditional song in Tuvalu. It's about a man who worked on the ships going between the islands and New Zealand and Sydney. Uh, that's Duprovka Volata there with that report. And if you are on Gadigal Country, the Tidal Can exhibit opens this Saturday at the Child Chuckawing Museum. Please stay with us because up shortly is our news wrap with producer Tare Aulitia here on Pacific Beat. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for a new sports show on ABC Radio Australia, Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat, where we head around the region just to see what is the latest with our news wrap. We've got the beautiful producer, Tzali Oli Itia, joining us this morning. How are you doing? Uh, very well, Abby. How are you going? <laughs> I'm good. Welcome back to the fold. Uh, I feel like it's girl power this morning. Oh, and I think it this... will be for a while now that I will be in this shift. For, I love it. You know, the weeks ahead. So, yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again for joining us this morning. Uh, we head to prominent PNG lawyer, Paul Paraka, sentenced to two decades behind bars. Goodness, what's happened there? Yeah, so it's a case that has obviously gripped um, Papua New Guinea for a decade, but PNG's National Court yesterday sentenced Paul Paraka to 20 years in prison. And yesterday afternoon, after the sentencing, no time was wasted and he was immediately transported to Bumana Jail. Um, it's obviously a big story and it's on the front page of the Post Courier today. Now, a little bit of a reminder for people who may not have been following super close attention and may have been wafting in and 
opinion out of your news stories for the past decade. But in 2014, uh, Mr. Paraka was arrested and charged by police on five counts of misappropriation. And after a slew of courtroom skirmishes and controversies, he was convicted this year in May of misappropriating the equivalent of 162 million kina, or that's around $70 million in Australian dollars, in public funds between 2007 and 2011. In fact, the whistleblower who brought, um, you know, this all thing was actually exiled and lives in Australia for fear of, you know, the repercussions of um, Paul Paraka and, you know, what had happened during that. Now, um, Justice Theresa Berrigan um, said yesterday that Mr Paraka was actually saved from the maximum penalty, which was 50 years jail time. But she said that the misappropriation case is the first of the country and the amount of money alone that was misappropriated could have warranted the maximum penalty. So um, no doubt there will be a lot of (laughs) thoughts and um, fallout from that announcement and we'll bring you all the latest here on Pacific Beat. Nice. Thank you for that. Uh, We head to Westpac. They've cancelled the sale of its businesses in Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Yeah, it feels like this is a day of all the stories are coming up and tying ends on it because the company has been trying to leave the Pacific for years and yesterday told the Australian Stock Exchange or the ASX that it will actually retain ownership and increase investment in the subsidiaries. Now, the Fin Review today is reporting that the decision to remain in the South Pacific came after the Australian Federal Government indicated that it wanted to see Australian companies playing a role in the region. And we just have to look at Telstra's acquisition of digital Digicel Pacific in the communications realm to just see how how much maybe a little bit of pressure the federal government was putting on Westpac. Now, in a staff email seen by the Finn, Westpac institutional boss um, Anthony Miller told staff yesterday that he saw a commercial opportunity in PNG and Fiji with, quote, our stability to be a strong, stable and trusted financial partner in the Pacific. The Fiji Village today is reporting that the Fijian government has welcomed the announcement by the Westpac Group. Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Finance, Professor Biman Prasad, says Westpac has played a critical role in Fiji's economic development with 123 years of operations and the decision to stay helps economic development and financial stability in Fiji. Um, You might remember that the company had been trying to leave for years um, and its $420 Australian um, million dollar divestment deal with Kina Securities was blocked in Papua New Guinea by the Papua New Guinea regulator when that deal had um, was homing to go with Kina Securities. So, yes, it's right. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> well, we, we will shall bring you the latest mm. when it arrives. I like that. I like that. Okay. Well, the Pacific's top diplomat has weighed in on Australia's voice referendum. Yeah, I feel like we're going to get a few more stories like this in the lead up to the October 14th vote. But the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Henry Puna, told media in Fiji yesterday that Australia's credibility in the region will be bolstered if the nation votes in favour for an Indigenous voice to Parliament on October 14. Now, Mr Puna was very... um, 
very adamant in stressing that the Pacific can't interfere in the vote and that it was a decision for Australians. But he said it would be wonderful to see Australia vote yes in the voice referendum. Of course, these comments come after Vanuatu's ex-foreign minister Ralph Reganvano told Pacific Beat yesterday that a no win would be a blow to Australia's relationships in the region. Now, a little update here in Australia, early voting on the referendum opened this week and most opinion polls so far are suggesting that a majority of Australians do intend to vote no, but the Yes campaign has been bolstered in recent days with rugby league Penrith Panthers rugby hero um, Nathan Cleary leading a renewed push for the Yes campaign. So no doubt a story that will keep continuing to follow not only to October 14th, but also depending on what the nation decides. They're on after as well. It's interesting because often when you want to use a celebrity, somehow we all have to follow, isn't it? So, <laughs> Well, we there say. are uh, quite a few sporting people who have come out and I think in yeah. just like in recent days, people like Nathan Cleary, obviously, it's a renewed push as they're calling it. <laughs> so we will obviously see how that goes. Awesome. Uh, again, thank you so much, Talia, for uh, bringing us our news wrap today here on Pacific Beat. No worries. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. You don't call yourself a comedian. Why why is that? Yeah, I just wanted to show everyone that I'm just being myself. If I make you laugh, that's just me. I'm I'm just making you laugh from being me. Tune in to Sisters Let's Talk Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. It's your host here, Aggie Tupou, as we head to a story here of Pacific Islanders who have a deep history of travel, migrations and settlement. During the 1960s, New Zealand experienced an influx of Pacific Islanders settling into the Auckland suburbs of Ponsonby, Greyland and Hearn Bay. But over the years, these areas have experienced gentrification, leading to an exodus of its Pacific residents. It's the story of those who've remained behind that's captured in the work of a filmmaker, Lee Thier, Still here is a short docu-series for ReNews and it is about the inner city Pacifica community that are still living in inner city Auckland. By rampant gentrification that has happened over the years, uh, they're a strong and thriving community um, that are doing, you know, great work within the community centres and just within the households and families too. Why was it important to do this documentary though? Well firstly there's a personal connection that comes from growing up and being born and raised in Ponsonby and Greylin so the familial connection to that place but also it got really frustrating when you would hear about people saying oh you know none of the islanders live there anymore or there used to be heaps of islanders here as though you know there isn't a community that has remained and is still there and still living their lives something that you know we can we can look at and have for generations uh Fine in one of the episodes she talks about the importance of telling these stories is to make the invisible visible again. First season, if you don't mind, maybe, you know, shaping what that was all about and then what can audiences now expect from the second season? I mean, it was my first time directing anything. Really, how it was all going to go, it was all very new for us, but it was wonderful because we had such great support from 
you know, the community and people and the crew. And the focus was very much on families, so family homes, families that have been there for generations since the 40s or even um, 40s, 50s, 60s. And then season two um, develops off that, but we focus more on some of the community groups and spaces rather than just individual families. Yeah, there's we've got Tongans, Nguyen's, Samoan, and then kind of mixed Pacific Rugby League Club as well. Do you have any stats of then how many of our Pacific people still remain or reside in Central Auckland? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, in truth, there, there aren't a lot there. I believe back in the 70s, it was nearly 75% community made up that proportion. And now it's down to, from the last statistics, uh, 7% or fewer than 7%. So, yeah, that's a, a, a massive drop off, particularly in the last 20, 30 years, and why they remain and what they hope for the next generation. Do a lot of the, do you even get to capture maybe the stories of those who have gone to, or is it just purely about those who have stayed behind? What I think is really important for this series are those intergenerational conversations so that we can capture, you know, what has come before because that is directly impacting, you know, what is happening now and for the future. And what we were hearing from the families was many of their parents or grandparents had come over from the islands. There was a lot of struggle that was involved in that migration, coming to New Zealand, trying to make a new life. But the fact that a lot of their families were really forward thinking and that they wanted to do what they could to create a foundation for future generations so that even if it wasn't in their lifetime, that their grandchildren or great-grandchildren could benefit from, I guess, the fruits of their labour and their hard work and their sacrifices. And that connection to legacy and the importance of, you know, honouring their family and their their ancestors that have come before them, but also to um, hold on and to preserve aspects of their culture as well. A really good example of that was the Koloa Matangi family, who mm-hmm. feature in this series, who uh, their grandfather created the first by cover Kupuanga Kava Group here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, alongside establishing the first Tongan church um, in Aotearoa, um, up in Greyland. And those two those two things were really, really closely connected. Um, and and their, you know, the importance of them staying there to preserve what their grandfather had created, but also to, you know, evolve it in a, in a modern way is really special. Mm. Yeah, I think of things like that, the Fofoanga, then you've got like PIC Newton Church, you've got the Whaleo Samoa that's still there on mm. K Road. I mean, I, I just think of Whaleo Samoa. It's there, but what is it being used for now? And then the Malta Samoa story, it, it's such a complex and layered one. And I think the first thing, like you said, it, it's really hidden in plain sight. A lot of people, even myself, would walk past that building every day and have no clue that the first Whaleo built outside of Samoa was put right here. And unfortunately, um, it has been quite neglected um, over the years um, with the consulate, you know, moving out to South Auckland. And it's been this sort of, in this weird limbo where where no one's been really sure what to do with it. But um, what we hope to catch the episode is that there is, you know, a small um, but really determined group is lacking, unfortunately, is access. And there's going to be a lot of important conversations that to happen with the Samoan government, who are technically the owners of that space. But mm. there's ideas that people have and a lot of passion to get momentum on that, particularly on Karangahapi Road. There's so much development happening now, like construction development in Auckland. The new railway station is going to open right outside the doors of that. So it is a it's a kind of a hot property and it's going to be and it's where it's located. A lot of people are going to be coming past and through it very soon. 
Yeah, talking about hot property, of course, many class in Central Auckland has been quite expensive and, you know, hence why many probably would have left. But again, with these remaining Pacific families who are still there, do they talk Mm. a lot maybe about the cost of living of, of, of in this modern day right now? Oh, yes, that that's a theme that really runs through both seasons. Um, you know, the living in an area which is, I mean, those suburbs now, Greylin, uh, Herne Bay, Ponsonby particularly, are the most expensive suburbs in New Zealand. Um, and so the, the just not only the rates, but the cost of living, the access to food, one family in um, the Falatuese family in season one talk about how Nowhere locally now really sells any Pacific food, like your taro, your bananas, all of that, that they have to go quite far in order to have access to their food. Um, You know, the cost of transport as well, um, that that is something that really plays heavily on, you know, those families' minds. And a lot of them say, you know, they are working-class families. They're still working-class families. They might be living in the most expensive suburb in New Zealand, but they're still, you know, they're, they're not. Um, making, they're not multi-millionaires, um, you know, but they're just, they're there and they're just trying to, to make their way in the world too. The the series is very much about the Pacifica community who migrated to um, Aotearoa, but it is very important that we acknowledge, you know, we are not the original stewards or custodians of the land and, you know, we are very grateful to uh, Mana Whenua and Ngāti Whātua Kiorake that, that this is, you know, their land and, you know, uh, we want our Pacific people to be in good relation and community with that. And I do think, though, of, you know, those who have moved on to Australia and other countries. Totally. I mean, there's... It's quite common now for many Pacific people to go to move from Aotearoa to Australia um, for, for better work opportunities. And I think one that stands out is with the Richmond Rovers Rugby League Club. A lot of the boys who have played there often go over to Australia to, you know, seek better opportunities in, as athletes in the sport and with their families as well. So Casey Lafayette, who features in um, one of the episodes he talks about going to Aussie as a teen and having family there, and then others who have played in the club. Um, you know, Gabby's the Solomona family. Many have gone over there um, to Australia to play as well. So there's some really deep connections. I know one of the popular music artists, Alisi, is you know his family's from Greyland, and he's big Australia and New Zealand now and going worldwide. So particularly a lot of our musical talent as well might have started in Central and and have gone over. To to Oz and those intergenerational and I guess connections across the ditch is something that is more evident as well, which I find really interesting. Ultimately, if someone was to tune in, Litia, would you want our audiences to take away? Oh, that's a great question. I know it's really hard to watch things in this day and age where there's so much kind of content and things thrown at you. So I just firstly appreciate people taking the time to sit down and watch the episodes. I hope, you know, they take away an appreciation for Pacific stories, you know, told by Pacifica people and in our way. Also, I hope that there's a sense of connection that they can make maybe with their own family. We love it when people watch the series intergenerationally, so with their parents and their grandparents. It's director Letia Tui Burelevo of the Still Here series. In the Pacific, spirituality is a big part of life, but the arrival of prophetess Lily Java in Fiji has raised plenty of eyebrows in a community well used to dealing with faiths of all kinds. Here's a little taste of her worship nights. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
faithful. You are glorious. We thank you. We But her presence in Fiji has divided opinion on social media because her blessings come at a price, money from her devotees. So joining us this morning is Dr. Georgi Ravulo, Professor of Social Work and Policy Studies at the University of Sydney. With that, I say good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am good, Georgi. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a good one. Uh, I would love to know your thoughts. Georgi, why is Prophetess Lily Java creating so much discourse on social media? I think because, as you had mentioned, spirituality faith is a big thing in our cultures, in in our Pacific way of life. And I think that we're attracted to that. But there is a lot to be desired around the practice of what I think the prophetess is doing in and across different parts of the community. And I think that's causing some concerns, especially around this notion of integrity. Well, and like you said, Fijians are used to dealing with spirituality and prophets. But is there anything different that Lily Java brings? There is a lot of excitement, definitely, and I think people love to be connected to God and to have this idea of being um, closer to God, and and I think that's why the prophetess brings some level of, of that. What, though, about the integrity is of concern is, yes, there's a cost for the blessing, and there's been other sources and videos that are popping up across social media of such requests that you can't receive some form of blessing and or some sort of intervention uh, unless you give some form of money um, or some sort of financial gift. Um, and I know we've seen practices of that over the years, you know, especially with the prosperity theology um, occurring in lots of different spaces in, in different uh, churches and denominations. But it's almost like this is the next level. Yes, this definitely seems like next level. We will get into that about costs and things like that. But I'm wondering, is there much known about Lily? Like, where does she come from? Well, I was speaking to one of my colleagues uh, also at the University of the South Pacific, Malachi Kaitani, and uh, he and I were trying to figure out what is the actual church or the denomination in which uh, they come from. And we were a bit unsure. So I think there's still some mystery around is it a particular church? Is it a particular den- denomination? Uh, I know they're uh, connected to a, a particular pastor, um, but we're still um, a bit unsure as to, yeah, what is it they're actually representing? Mm. Uh, I was going to say, was there a link between uh, local churches or is this a very independent thing? Because I do understand there has probably been an influx of our Pacific people, not just in Fiji, who seem to be, uh, you know, taking on or joining these somewhat African ministries or uh, Black American ministries. Have you seen that? I have, I have. And I think we, we see that traditionally, even from the way in which Pacific people identify um, with Black communities and the Black struggle that has occurred in different spaces, especially in Western countries or settings. And I think there has been a trend over the, the years of that, um, especially when it comes to uh, connecting uh, to this idea of of wanting um, more than what we currently might have. And and that's what's also quite fascinating by this, this idea that uh, having a blessing or having a miracle will grant something uh, that we don't currently have like finances or health. 
Uh, if you're just tuning in, we are speaking with Dr. Georgi Ravulo on this presence and controversy of Prophetess Lily Java in Fiji. Uh, Georgi, blind acceptance. Is this something that we were seeing more of a pushback? Because, you know, young Fijians, uh, they seem to be more willing to question things like this. Exactly. And I think this was also fascinating about this whole situation. I think in the past, growing up in the church, growing up with forms of spirituality and faith, it was something that you just sort of did as part and parcel of what your family did, what the local community did. But what's fascinating about what we're seeing with the prophetess is that people are being critical. There's a critical conversation that people are willing to have around what is this all about? What does this mean? Is this legit? Is it too much? Does it genuinely represent God? What a good question to have answered. And now there was leader Richard Naidu. I know he tweeted recently, I do hope the prophetess will be paying Fiji some earthly tax on her heavenly earning. Because when you look at it, uh, some of her seminars or her workshops to be able to meet her community in Fiji, costing $111 USD, which in turn, Fijian dollars, that's around about $253. That's a lot for our people back in the islands. I mean... Does that mm. seem like it's a clear scam? Ooh, um, that's, yeah, it, yes, I think that that's a bit rich. I think considering how much uh, at the hourly rate, pay rate is in Fiji and for people to have to pay that amount of money, is it a clear scam? Look, I have full faith that people have the intelligence and the ability to critique the you know, the the, the, the requests and what's being asked. But, yeah, I think one of the key things that we, we still need to, to really question is, is is this, I don't know, is it bang for buck that we're looking at here? <laughs> because people go into this sort of stuff willing for miracles that they are going to be blessed beyond what they currently have. And so I, I, people are willing to do that. Um, I think if we look at the broader uh, systems and structures in which people are located in the Pacific, there's still a lot to to be desired. And I think that's not necessarily a reflection or a bad reflection of our different governments, but it's about how do we continue to create um, health systems and, and even uh, – employment opportunities that are sustainable uh, in the region. So that's there's some of the broader questions that I have, especially from a policy point of view. Yeah, look, not going to lie, as a woman of faith, I totally understand what miracles look like in a person's life. But there is this use of social media, right, that we see. And it's very interesting because in the video, you can mm. clearly see that uh, she is having her feet being kissed on arrival in <laughs> Fiji. I don't know how you would interpret that, but how would you interpret that? They're living the dream. Who would not want that to happen when you arrive in Fiji? No, just joking. I think that, <laughs> that is definitely a a reflection of 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 just accepting something that people want. Um, yes, it, I think that is over over the top, and and I think that's where a lot of criticisms are occurring that that the prophetess is somewhat taking advantage of people's vulnerabilities, uh, but also just, that, as you said, blind acceptance um, of, of who they are and, and what they can present and give to the people. Yeah, not too long ago, uh, Georgie, the South Korean Grace Road Church, they arrived mm-hmm. in Fiji claiming mm-hmm. it their paradise. Um, is there mm-hmm. something about Fiji that, you know, makes it attractive, <laughs> I suppose, for more <laughs> controversial, I don't know about faith groups, but, you know, religious groups? 
Yeah, Grace, right. That's an interesting one altogether as well. I think it's the same sort of thing here in regards to integrity. As people started to become more aware of the operations of Grace Road and what they were doing for their followers or the people that were involved in in such a a uh, denomination and or church. Really, what was being questioned again was around the practices and how they were treating people. And I think that's the essence here that people are calling out. Are such movements genuine? Are they taking advantage of people? Are they taking advantage of our specific way of life and our kindness and our ability to have and create community? Uh, And I think that's where a lot of faith-based organisations are accepted generally in the Pacific because we do gravitate towards what churches bring because ultimately a lot of our churches represent community, family, uh, faith, and, and we gravitate towards that, especially from our traditional uh, cultures and perspectives. I just, I I can only imagine that if this was to be a scam, how much this would hurt, of course, the people of Fiji or any sort of Pacific nation. I mean, your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's something that we need to be mindful of. If we're going to continue to support these types of initiatives or movements, what are the implications? What are the flow effects? What uh, does it mean for those that have invested all this time, energy and money into into following these particular movements and faiths and denominations? So I think that's also something that is popping up in that critical conversation around what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to follow God? Again, is it about following a higher power that is genuinely, um, you know, supportive of, of people's needs without it being exploitative. Mm. So with the conversations that we should be having, I mean, what would be your advice, Georgie, to those who may be going along to this uh, workshop or the seminar uh, and how they can avoid whether or not it does become a scam? I think um, go back to some of the basic principles of, of what you believe and what comes from your you know, various sources of faith, like especially if you are going to to be involved in, in, you know, expressions of faith, look back at your source documents like the Bible. What does that say? Uh, as I was speaking to, again, my colleague at the University of South Pacific, Malachi Kaitani, he was talking about some of the Bible passages that say that uh, worship should be done in private as opposed to in public. And I think that's what I think that's what's quite interesting about the recording and the taping of these public displays of of worship. Does it necessarily reflect uh, the principles of in the Bible or what does it mean to be um, a Christian? So I think that's one of the things that I would encourage people to be mindful of and all have those critical conversations with each other. Uh, mm. and, and create that sense of engagement amongst each other, especially around these key topic areas. Yeah, absolutely. Georgie, it is always good to catch up with you. We really appreciate your insight this morning. Anytime. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries. That, of course, is Dr. Georgie Ravulo, Professor of Social Work and Policy Studies at the University of Sydney. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat, recapping our top stories. Excitement builds in Solomon Islands over the opening of the revamped Munda International Airport. Stephen Degwa, the World Bank's Country Director for the Pacific Islands, says the new international airport will improve connectivity between Western Province and the rest of the country and region what it signifies for them in terms of showcasing the uh, greater opening up of Solomon Islands to, to business. And a prophetess who's arrived in Fiji has raised plenty of eyebrows on social media as her blessings come at a price. You can't 
receive some form of blessing uh, unless you give some form of money or some sort of financial gift. But it's almost like this is at the next level. People are willing to do that. Professor Giorgi Ravulo speaking to me earlier. Now, if you want to listen to the full story, they'll be available on the ABC Pacific website soon. I'll be back again at the same time next week because tomorrow is your sports edition, 6am with Richard Hewitt. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia. News is next and coming up after that is Nisha Daily. This is Pacific Beat. <laughs>